Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Martin Whittock. Martin is one of the best-selling historians in the United Kingdom. We're talking to Martin about his brilliant new book, American Vikings, just published by Pegasus Books. Martin, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about yourself. As I mentioned there, you're one of the UK's best-selling historians. You've written extensively. Um, You've written a lot on the Vikings previous to this book. Um, How did you come to to, to this kind of interest? Well, I read politics at Bristol University uh, many years ago now, uh, but I've always had a fascination with history as as well as with politics. And I went into secondary school teaching um, in the British state school system, and I taught for 35 years and was head of history, head of humanities, um, and latterly head of um, spiritual, moral, social and cultural education um, at um, UK comprehensive school. So I've always had a fascination with history, which perhaps also explains why I have a wide range of interests, because as a history teacher, you know, it was Romans lesson one on a Friday um, and it was um, Stalin's Stalin's Russia uh, lesson six with year 13 on, you know, the same day, but, you know, the, 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 the last lesson. So I have a wide ranging interest in a wide range of different historical areas, um, but I have particularly had a big interest in the early medieval period and that's where the Viking interest came from that I've developed over the years and indeed have taught it to A level as well. And so Although I have a wide range of interests, this is an area that I am particularly interested in, which, as I say, is the early modern period, uh, sorry, the early medieval period um, and, and the Viking area. But I've also become interested recently in what you might call deep stories, the way by which we use the past to e- explain the present. So I wrote about Mayflower, for example, um, a few years ago, and that got me very interested in American politics. I wrote a book called Trump and the Puritans, or co-wrote it, which we looked at the, the roots of the current political system within the, the USA and the turbulence state there within American history. And and I realised that the Vikings, the Norse, and we might want to talk about terms a little bit in just a moment, are deeply rooted in what you might call the deep story of many, many countries, ranging from Ukraine and Russia, um, as we're seeing played out in, in terrible violence at the moment, but the Vikings play a part within the history of the Rus there, right through to North America, and of course across Scandinavia uh, and and in Ireland uh, and 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 across the UK. So this fascination with the early medieval period in the Vikings and the deep stories that we use and abuse history to try to explain something about ourselves in the present came together in this particular book, which is called American Vikings, and is subtitled How the Norse Sailed into the Lands and, crucially, and the imaginations of America. And that's how this came together from a number of different areas flowing together into this one particular book. Yes, in some ways, this is a book that does pull together a lot of your interests, isn't it? Um, Yes. We have politics, we have history. um, And I think what's so exciting for me as a reader about this book is to see how firmly it's grounded in the scholarly literature and yet how accessible it is for general readers. It's um, a really significant achievement, I think. Okay, Martin, you mentioned uh, terminology there, descriptors, the title is American Vikings, but the subtitle refers to the Norse. So who were the Vikings and what does the word really mean? Well, when I first began to 
uh, draw attention to this on social media a few months ago, I got a pushback from purists saying, you shouldn't call them Vikings, you should call them Norse. And in the book, I do, in fact, explain that, that technically we are talking about Norse culture. We're talking about the culture of Scandinavia and the Scandinavian diaspora all the way from Ukraine, right the way through to Iceland, Greenland and beyond. So technically, we should talk about people in this culture as the Norse, who are speakers of various old Norse languages and dialects of that. And technically speaking, Viking is more of what you did than what you were. So many of the people that we now call Vikings would not have described themselves as Vikings. They were men and women who were traders and explorers and farmers. They were not the usually young men who went out on testosterone-fueled free enterprise, robbing, raiding, slave-taking, carving out kingdoms abroad. But I make the point in the book that whilst I accept that, and that's absolutely the case, Viking has become the label of choice now for so many people that it's the one that I've used. So although we call them Vikings, technically I'm talking about people who are part of this explosion out of Scandinavia from the late 8th century until about the year 1100, who were part of the Viking Age. But we use the term now, it would confuse people, I thought, if I started calling everybody Norse rather than Vikings. And if you Google Norse costumes for your um, fancy dress party, you won't get as interesting a response as if you Google um, Viking costumes. Uh, and of course, when I say Google, other search engines are also available. But in the book, you remind us not to do that without turning on a safe, safe, safe searching function first. I do indeed. I do indeed. Yes. Uh, basically, do make sure you put on a safe search because the Vikings have sailed into some very interesting areas of the popular imagination. Let us put it that way. Well, let's go back to geography for a bit. So we're talking about Norse culture. It's rooted in Scandinavia, of course. Uh, in the book, though, we, we get a real sense of the geographical breadth that Vikings covered uh, from camel riding Vikings in Baghdad all the way through to purported landings um, as far down the North American coast as Maine, for example, perhaps even further, and through the Great Lakes and potentially into Minnesota. We might come to some of those claims later on. But what was the geographical range of these peoples? Well, basically, we're talking about people whose homeland is in modern Scandinavia, although the, the modern nation states of Denmark, Norway and Sweden did not exist in this period, but were beginning to form latest of all in Sweden, um, behind that Norway, perhaps earlier precociously in, in, in Denmark. But there is an explosion of movement out of Scandinavia from sort of the 780s onwards until about 1100, fueled by population growth in Scandinavia, fueled by the beginnings of kingdom building, whereby those that succeed have a more secure base to go on adventures abroad, but also those who lose have an incentive to go abroad to try to carve out a future for themselves somewhere else than Scandinavia. We also know that changes in the Islamic caliphate uh, from the 8th century onwards at various points starved Scandinavia of Islamic silver because there was disruption in the trade. And this too may have prompted movements out of Scandinavia in order to gain the kind of products, silver particularly, 
likely that were needed in gift exchange and in social arrangements within Scandinavia itself. At the same time, there also is a push on the southern borders of Denmark uh, by the expanding Frankish kingdom. So there is something of a clash of civilizations going on here. And some people argue that there's something of a cultural pushback in this period by Scandinavians who at this time are pagan against what is aggressive Christianization on the southern Danish border and in the German lands by the Franks. So a whole range of different factors lead to a movement of Scandinavians out of Scandinavia from the 8th century onwards. And the first phase tends to be raiding, slave taking, and that affects areas as far apart as North Africa, Ireland experiences this very much so. The United Kingdom does, what we now call United Kingdom, the coast, the coastal areas of the North Sea coast um, and what we now call the English Channel coast. But we also see that latterly turning during the ninth century to settlement. And that's the point in which people coming from Scandinavia, mixed groups, coalesce to carve out kingdoms, which still are intimately connected with the northern homelands, but are founding kingdoms in the Kingdom of Dublin, for example, uh, the Kingdom of York. Those two kingdoms often intimately connected uh, through rulers, uh, taking over many of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and producing a, a hybrid culture uh, in Ireland um, and in England and elsewhere of Norse people settling in, mixing in with, then becoming players in the politics of the nations in which they arrive. So they're very chameleon in this, this sense, intermarrying with local Slavs, forming the first Russian state, Kiev Rus, for example, intermarrying with Irish nobility, intermarrying with um, Anglo-Saxon nobility as well. So it's a fascinating sh shift from raiding and attacking, which is the popular imagination of Vikings. That's how you think of Vikings. And moving into the settlement period where they become players within the kingdoms and nations that they land in. Uh, Normandy, for example, being an area carved out of, of, of the Frankish areas, um, Kingdom of Dublin, Kingdom of York, and so on, as I say, Kiev Rus. So basically, that's it in a nutshell, driven by a range of factors and leading eventually to settlement right across a wide diaspora that remains connected to the homelands by trade, by politics, by all sorts of connectivity, but are also becoming particularly interwoven into the fabric of the communities that they become part of, albeit to start with, violently part of. Now, one of the things I appreciated about the book was the way in which you emphasised the cultural mixing that begins to happen in these hybrid cultures. And of course, we're recording this on Thursday. Um, had we recorded it yesterday, we'd have been recording it on Woden's Day. And you tell us in the book how Thor and Woden are um, Anglo-Saxon versions of Thor and Odin uh, in, in, in the Viking cosmology. And, and yet at the same time, what I thought was fascinating about the book is that you tell us that within a couple of generations, the Vikings are taking on the new religion that they seem to encounter in so many of the places where they go raiding. So again, going back to this mythology of, you know, these um, horned, helmeted barbarians jumping out of dragon boats, very many of these people who were going Viking were Christians. Yes, that's true. It's remarkable that within a couple of generations, sometimes within one generation of settlement in the areas they go to, they convert. So, for example, the children and certainly the grandchildren of the people who 
killed, martyred uh, St Edmund of East Anglia are minting coins in the name of St Edmund of East Anglia, who their fathers or grandfathers killed. We see the same thing happening in Ireland, where they begin to intermarry within the Christian Irish and Right across the board, they become, of course, the originators of the Byzantine-led orthodox conversion of what we now call southern Russia and Ukraine, which is where they become part of that deeply contested story, bitterly contested current story of the origins of Ukraine and Russia. Um, not for nothing did Vladimir Putin uh, put up a statue of Vladimir or Vladimir the Great in Moscow uh, only a few years before the invasion of Ukraine, because they're claimed to be part of the orthodox story of Russia. So they are very much cultural chameleons, which is part of their success, but it also means that in the long term, they can almost vanish within the communities they settle, albeit they're leaving evidence for the fact that they were there, but they rapidly become part of the communities that they join. It's a success factor, but it also is a factor of integration that means that they can, after a while, vanish. It's interesting that in 1066, Anglo-Saxon sources call the Normans the Frankie. As far as they're concerned, they're the French. Um, that's not how we tend to think about the Norman conquest of 1066 um, in, in England and the UK, but it's a testimony to to the way in which they integrate with local communities and they convert to the Christian faith all the way from Catholicism in the West to Orthodox Christianity uh, in the East of Europe. Now, 1066, but one generation before that, we begin to have evidence, don't we, for Viking presence in North America. What's all that about? Yeah, exactly. We have, we have, evidence dating from 13th century sagas written in Iceland, Eric the Red Saga and the Saga of the Greenlanders. Dating from about 1264 in the case of Eric the Red Saga, that's the earliest manuscript, and about 1387 in the case of the Saga of the Greenlanders. But it seems quite clear that in the generation after about 1200, older traditions are being written down in Christian Iceland, which talk about movements from the British Isles and Norway to Iceland in the 870s, and then about a century later, a bit less than that, to Greenland, and then around the year 1000, movements westward, there are various accounts of this, talking about accidental discoveries of land to the west of Greenland, driven by storms, then of deliberate attempts to explore and colonize these areas and here we have clues as to something quite extraordinary going on the sagas refer to heluland stone slab land markland forest land and eventually vinland vineland or wineland and what we have here is descriptions which from their topography sound very like the canadian subarctic and the North American continent. And that from descriptions, we're pretty sure that Helloland is probably the east coast of Baffin Island in the Canadian territory of Nunavut. Um, Markland, probably the southern coast of Labrador. And Vinland, with its references to winemaking fruits and also to self-sown wild wheat, probably to the area from the Gulf of St. Lawrence 
to northern New England. But until the 20th century, we did not have archaeological evidence for this, although from the 18th century onwards, people outside of Scandinavia become increasingly aware of this, particularly uh, within North America, and begin to realise that this really sounds real. This does not sound simply mythological. This sounds like part of a westward movement. And then in the 1960s, we finally gain evidence from Lonsor Meadow, a northern trip of Newfoundland, which show clear proof that Viking Age settlers were on Newfoundland around the year 1000. And remarkably, in the year 2021, we have evidence from dendrochronology, which shows those settlers were there at that place, cutting wood in 10. 21. So we have the, the literary sources and we now have the archaeological sources. And it's interesting, the literary sources also include other evidence we don't always refer to that I talk about in the book that show that after the apparent eclipse of this settlement in Newfoundland doesn't seem to have lasted beyond much around the year 1100, 1121 perhaps, there were other voyages to Vinland. We hear of um, Bishop Eric from Greenland going to look for Vinland in the annals of the kings of Iceland. Um, we have other references, for example, the Elder Skalholt annals, again from Iceland, talk about a ship originally from Greenland having sailed to Markland, that place again, and being driven by storms at sea. We see mythological sagas, for example, the saga of Halfdan Eysteinsson, which talks about rulers bringing Heluland's deserts under sway and destroying all the giants there. So clearly, by the 13th, 14th century, these lands to the west are entering a sort of a twilight zone, a twilight world of semi-mythological evidence and semi-mythological references. But it, it shows that for a generation or two, after the initial settlements, people are going to and from the North American continent, from Greenland. And then with changing climatic conditions and resistance, which is hinted at in the sagas from Native Americans, this settlement becomes untenable. It's too far from Greenland. They are at the limits of their supply lines. They are facing increasing deterioration, certainly from the 14th century onward, which will eventually eclipse the Norse settlements on Greenland. And there was never a large enough population on Greenland of Norse settlers to basically support the next westward movement. And there is resistance from Native Americans to this intrusion into the eastern seaboard. But from the 20th century, we know that it's not myth. It really happened. They were there. But the question is, how much further did they go? Now, in the book, you do dwell on that problem uh, quite extensively, don't you? And we enter uh, a sometimes strange and puzzling world of archaeological claims and counterclaims, which taken at face value, would have the Vikings penetrating quite far into the North American continent. You suggest in the book that some of that could at face value be plausible, given their access to the Great Lakes, given their access to the eastern coast. But some of these other claims you're much more cautious about. Can you tell us why? Yes, the only solid archaeological evidence we have is from Launceau Meadows. 
accompanied by a coin called the main penny or the Goddard coin, which we're now pretty confident had lain in its position until it was found in the 1950s for a long time, probably for several centuries. We're also getting more and more evidence from the Canadian Arctic and subarctic Norse finds there. But what this does is it shows us interaction with Native American and Proto-Inuit trade routes. It doesn't necessarily show us the presence of Norse people themselves, other than at Launce or Meadows, because these things can get there by hand-over-hand trade over a long distance. And there are other associated artefacts that show that this hand-over-hand trade is happening. But what we have is we have a range of runic stone evidence from areas stretching to Minnesota, unlikely Oklahoma, uh, West Virginia. And these date from the late 19th century onwards. Now, for a whole range of reasons, these are almost certainly fakes because they accompany particularly in the midwest the movement of scandinavian settlers into minnesota for example after the 1860 dakota war such that by the 1890s we're starting to get the discovery of runic evidence that vikings norse were here first things about the context make that highly unlikely but it also would explain itself in that we have scandinavian settlers seeking to validate their ownership of the land which has been taken from native americans by basically saying no, we were here even before the dakota people moved down from the the, the woodlands of, of minnesota etc you know in, in in fairly recent times and so each one of these evidence pieces is highly problematic in its find, in its find, in its method of find being found, uh, in its context, in the kind of language that's on it. So we're pretty sure that most of the runestones that you'll find online, and there are a whole range of them, are almost certainly fakes. But the evidence from Launceau Meadows in terms of white walnuts, butternuts, and other types of wood that was found there, which never grew on Newfoundland, and the references to Vinland and to wild wheat show that they must have got as far south as New Brunswick and very possibly into Maine and maybe even further south. But at the moment, we do not have reliable archaeologically attested evidence for that. But the sagas are signposts pointing to farther inland and pointing to farther south. So I think it is only a matter of time, but we're not there yet. Now, that takes us to the final part of the book, doesn't it? Which is thinking about how Vikings sailed into the American imagination. And uh, your comments there about the westward expansion of Scandinavian settlers trying to develop a kind of indigenous history of their own opens up uh, some, some of the big themes that you explore in the final part of the book, which is to think about how Vikings have become present uh, in some radical right political discourses, you take us through the Germ- uh, the, the American Nazi Party and the big Madison Square rally. Uh, you take us all the way to the January 6th putsch at the Capitol building uh, just a couple of years ago. So how does all this work? What, what role do Vikings play in the American political imagination today? From the late 18th century, these Norse settlements rooted in the saga evidence become part of the deep story of European settlement of North America and explanations of what they are about. 
And there becomes a pushback against Columbus in the 19th century, largely because he's regarded as being too South European and too Catholic um, in the context of the time by people who are feeling under threat by new immigration into the USA. And so Vikings give them this concept of muscular, white, North Europeans, um, who at the time, many of them were Christians, like Columbus was, of course, um, but are North Europeans. And so that feeds into a narrative which begins with Scandinavians saying we were here before Columbus, gets picked up by people in the early 20th century who are wanting to have white North European antecedents, who will become part of a muscular um a dramatic adventure that, that that creates an American community centuries before Columbus. As you say, it's picked up by the American right, who become very much part of, of the, um, the, the Nordic focus on Aryanism um, with its attendant racism in the 1930s. And what that means is that there's a number of things flowing into the 20th century view of the Vikings. Some of it, you know, is fairly benign. It gets picked up by Hollywood and we see it in Marvel comics. We see it in the Thor movies. And, and that's part of an interest in, in the Vikings globally. But it has a particular American take on it because they are aware there's a particular American interest. And as a consequence of that, um, Vikings often speak with an American accent now, if you see what I mean, both, both culturally as, as, as well as literally. Literally. But it, but the darker side of it, which is exemplified by the right, doesn't go away. And that becomes part of the culture wars of the late 20th century and the early 21st century as a particularly American view of itself, particularly American view of its origins, gets taken by some people within the extremist movements of current American politics to say we are the original Vinland settlers. You know, there, 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 is a, there is a war going on for the future of Vinland now, they would say, as there was for the future of Vinland in the 11th century. So, for example, we see a number of extremist groups in America in the 21st century making direct references to Vinland, Vinland origins. Uh, we see the guy at the Capitol with his body covered with Viking tattoos um, on January the 6th. What's that all about? He's part of a much broader movement that seeks to validate current right-wing politics within the Vinland Vikings. We see, for example, a, a, a murder on a max train in Portland being done by somebody who is claiming to be doing it on behalf of this 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 Finland Viking mythological past. We see Odinist groups in Canada and North America making these same statements. It's part of a global phenomenon. The um, the Christchurch killings uh, in New Zealand, appalling events at uh, the mosque there, were done by somebody who was part of this Odinist Vinland movement. The terrible murders that took place by a gunman um, in Norway uh, a few years ago was of a man that had Viking runic names of, of gods carved on the, the stock of the gun that he did the killing with. So it's part of a global phenomenon that seeks to root current white supremacism in the actions of perceived heroic white warriors of the past. But it has a very particular American take. So in the turbulent America of 2024, expect to find somewhere in that cocktail Vindham Vikings. Mm. Well, Martin, you have written, as I said, a lot of books, over 50, I think, at my last count. 
what's your next one going to be after this? I'm currently working on a book tentatively called Vikings in the East, um, a contested legacy that would look at the origins of Ukraine and Russia as seen through the deep story of, of, of the Viking Rus there and how that has been taken, hijacked and used in the complex politics of later times, particularly in the 21st century. And of course, has echoes in the events that are taking place even as we speak. So that's something that I'm currently researching, doing work on, which if, if it takes off, would be called Vikings in the East, which would be a kind of a balance to Vikings in the West. Well, that sounds wonderful. And maybe we'll get a chance to speak about it in due course. Martin, thanks for good. your time. You're a busy man and you've been very generous giving us your time today. So thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. We've been talking to Martin Whittock, author of American Vikings, How the Norse Sailed into the Lands and Imaginations of America, just published by Pegasus Books. Thank you, Martin, and thank you, everyone else. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.